Hello everyone, and welcome to Classic Gaming Today, where we take a look at the gaming experiences of the past through the eyes of the present. I am your host, Tony, and today we're going to look at Contra, a run-and-gun shooter developed and published by Konami and released in the arcades in 1987 with several home ports following in the coming years, with the most significant port being to the Nintendo Entertainment System in 1988. We're going to talk about that game in just a couple minutes, but first, as is customary, just a little bit of housekeeping. This is episode number 31, and I am excited to be here. I hope all of you are as well. If you'd like to reach out, let me know how I'm doing, give suggestions, comments, feedback, or just talk about classic gaming and technology. I would love to hear from you, and there are a couple of ways that you can reach out to me. I do have an email address, which is classicgamingtoday at gmail.com. I also have a Twitter account with the handle at ClassicGamingT. So if you feel so inclined, feel free to drop me a line. I'd definitely love to have the discussion. For anyone who may be new, welcome. I do just want to take a brief moment to go over the anatomy of an episode, because for the most part, all of our episodes follow a very similar format and structure. We will always start by talking about the history of the game in question, the historical context. How was the game made? Why was the game made? Where does it sit within the overall video and computer game historical context and perspective? And then we move into a pseudo-review kind of section. And I call it a pseudo-review because it's not like we give a quantitative value to a game or rank them or anything like that, but we do talk about every single game with several different perspectives in mind. We always talk about the graphics. How does the game look? The sound and music. How does the game sound? The narrative and or story, if the game has one. Playability and controls, and the overall feel. How does the game feel to play today versus when it was released 20, 30, maybe even 40 years ago? And we do all of that in order to reach a verdict as far as how well the game holds up today. And to do that, we assign each game to one of several categories. At the very top of our list is the Pantheon of Classic Gaming. If a game reaches the Pantheon, you know it is that darn good. It is an amazing experience, a true classic. You should play it today. It hasn't aged at all. It is as good today as it was when it was released. Just beyond that are our golden oldies. These are the games that are just underneath the Pantheon level. They're still amazing experiences. I still highly recommend you play them, especially if you have nostalgia for the game or you enjoy the genre. You are almost guaranteed to have a good time. They're still awesome, still things that I think you should experience today. Beyond the golden oldies are our mediocre mentions. These are where we start getting into the games that I cannot fully recommend to the entire population. You may have a good time with the game still, especially if you like the genre or you've played the game before and you really enjoy it, go back, play it again. That would be, that'd be fine. But I can't recommend them to the general population because either the games have aged a little bit or they may have had a couple of issues to begin with. And then beyond the mediocre mentions are the footnotes. These are the games that are best left in the annals of history. I have played them, so you don't have to. I cannot recommend anybody play these games. They have either aged incredibly poorly, or they may not have been all that great to begin with. With that out of the way, we're going to start talking about the game of the day. That is Contra. Thank you. 
Contra is a run-and-gun shooter originally developed and published by Konami and released in the arcades in 1987 with several other home ports that would follow. Before we can talk about Contra, we need to talk about the evolution of the run-and-gun shooter. Because what we know as a run-and-gun game today evolved from a couple of different styles of gameplay, early twin-stick shooters and the side-scrolling, typically vehicle-based shooter. So to start, let's talk about the twin-stick shooter. The reason that these games are called twin-stick shooters is because, most of the time, they come with two joysticks. One of the joysticks controls movement, the other controls aiming and shooting. Typically, in a traditional twin-stick shooter, you'll have waves of enemies that spawn per screen. And most of the time, these twin-stick shooters, especially back in the time frame we're talking about, 80s, 90s-ish time kind of timelines, most of the time you're talking about games that are single screen kinds of games. You stay on the screen, you eliminate all of the enemies, you may move on to another screen at some point, but it's not like you're navigating an open world. You're pretty much on a single screen and just mowing down waves of bad guys. Sometimes these games have weapon power-ups, sometimes the different levels or screens have obstacles and traps that you have to avoid or disarm. They usually can be single-player or multiplayer. A lot of the more recent ones in the 90s were multiplayer because it's just a heck of a lot of fun to beat up a bunch of bad guys with a partner, but they could in fact be single-player as well. Generally speaking, when most people hear the term twin-stick shooter, I would wager that most people think about a game like Smash TV. And Smash TV was a very influential arcade and home title released back in the early 90s, and it really popularized the genre. But the true origins of the twin-stick shooter are much older than that, with one of the first titles using a dual-joystick mechanism for combat being a game called Gunfight, which was otherwise known as Western Gun. That was an arcade title developed by Taito and released in 1975 to the arcades, with Midway ultimately handling the United States' release. So Gunfight is a very simple concept. It's a two-player game. One player appears on one side of the screen, the other on the opposite end of the screen. And the general concept is you each control a cowboy, and the objective is to shoot the other player. You move your character with one joystick, and you can move all around the screen, and the other joystick is used to fire your gun. And the way the game is designed is you start on one side of the screen, your enemy starts on the other side of the screen, and in the middle of the screen, there are various obstacles that can pop up. And those obstacles can either serve as cover, or they could also be an obstacle to you shooting the other person across the screen. Some of those obstacles are destructible, like cacti that are on the screen. Others are not, like stagecoaches that will sometimes roll along past in the middle of the screen that will prevent you from actually shooting your opponent. You do have a time limit, and you also have a certain number of bullets. So to kill your opponent, you have to shoot them. And in this game, one shot kills. You could almost think of Gunfight as an early Old West Bushido Blade kind of title. Bushido Blade was a very famous title back on the PlayStation 1, where it was a 3D fighter, and the core concept there 
was rather than the traditional fighting game concept where everybody has a health bar and you have to whittle that health bar down in order to beat your opponent, in Bushida Blade, one hit could kill. If you got a good hit on somebody, if you sliced at their neck or their head or anything like that, you could literally defeat the opponent in one attack. And it was a very tense game to play. Gunfight is kind of similar to that, albeit very much more primitive and very much more of an Old West kind of feel. And I've got to say, now that I'm thinking about it, an Old West style Bushido blade would kind of be awesome. That sounds like an idea that probably needs to be revisited at some point. Anyway, Gunfight is significant because it was the first game to feature human-on-human violence. Sure, it was primitive, but still, it introduced that concept to the masses, at least in video game form. And despite its simplicity, it was a pretty popular title. It remained on the top-grossing arcade cabinet list for three years following its release, so it had a lot of staying power on on the market and in the market. Gunfight, though, was purely a one-on-one affair. There were no computer-controlled opponents, and there really wasn't any deeper gameplay outside of trying to kill your opponent. That focus would be expanded in 1977, when its sequel, Boot Hill, was released by Midway through a license from Taito. In Boot Hill, you'd have the ability to not only fight other human players, but also computer-controlled characters, once again in a one-on-one Western duel with obstacles appearing in between you and your opponent. While it undeniably improved upon its predecessor, it wasn't nearly as popular. Gunfight stayed on the top of the charts for a while. Boot Hill, not so much. Now, outside of Gunfight and Boot Hill, several other games were released that would iterate on the formula, with perhaps the most significant game being Sheriff, which was developed by Nintendo back in 1979. Unlike Gunfight and Boot Hill, Sheriff would involve the player having to fend off a gang of bandits, all of whom would surround your character at the start of the game on the outskirts of the game's screen. Various obstacles, including a fence, would provide cover for both you and the computer-controlled bad guys, and on occasion you would get swarmed by several enemies and have to avoid their attacks while trying to shoot them. Now I do want to say one technicality here. Sheriff was not a true twin-stick shooter, in the truest sense of the word. You did have a joystick to move your character, but in order to aim and fire, you actually had a spin dial to aim your shot. So rather than another joystick, you would spin this dial, and that would change what direction you were aiming for your shots. Regardless, the core mechanics were effectively the same as a twin-stick shooter, even though you didn't actually have twin sticks. Now, Sheriff was notable for a couple reasons. For one, it would represent the title that really set Nintendo on the path to becoming a full-fledged video game developer. And second, it would represent the first time that Shigeru Miyamoto worked on a game for the company, as he was responsible for designing the art for the game. The next big evolution in twin-stick shooters would come later, in 1982, with the release of Robotron 2084, a game where your character has to fend off waves of robots while avoiding obstacles all along the way to rescue various human captives held in each of the game's levels. While primitive by today's standards, Robotron is probably the first twin-stick shooter to combine many of the foundational elements that would inspire nearly every other game in the genre moving forward. 
In Robotron, there were multiple levels to navigate, all of which were represented as a single screen in the game world. There was a focus on non-stop action. There were various environmental hazards and obstacles to navigate, and there were unending waves of enemies to dispatch, with different enemy types adding a degree of variety that hadn't really existed up to that point. So with the foundational elements of twin-stick shooters now established, let's turn our attention to the side-scrolling shooter, a genre that was effectively invented by the release of a single game, Defender, back in 1980. So let's talk about Defender. In that game, you control a spaceship, and your goal is to rescue other humans while defeating alien invaders. And the way the game worked is you were dropped into a world and you would have a map on the top of the screen. And as you would move left or right, you would be navigating or moving horizontally throughout this game world, and the map would scroll with you. And the way that you would control the game is basically moving left, right, up, down with your joystick, and the world would just kind of spin, and it would repeat itself horizontally. It wasn't like a gigantic open-world game. You would be effectively going around the world multiple times, and the map would keep up with you so you could see kind of where you were within that world. And the whole goal was to try to save humans that were captive of the aliens. Uh, It was primitive by today's standards once again, but it was a truly revolutionary title for a couple of reasons. One of the biggest, though, is that this was one of the first arcade games that was not just a single-screen experience. So when I say single-screen experience, I don't mean that you literally have no variety in levels or stages or you don't progress in a game. What I mean by a single-screen experience is when you're playing the game, you have just one screen that has a certain set of dimensions and you may be able to move to the edge of the screen and a new screen paints that's totally fine but there is no scrolling it's not like you're walking through a world defender was not a single screen experience it was literally like a world you would be able to navigate side to side and the game would scroll with you so this was one of the very first arcade games that had that kind of scrolling element built into it As you might imagine, Defender was a significant title in video game history, and it would serve as the launching point for other game developers to try their hand at creating similar side-scrolling shooter titles, one of which was entitled Scramble, developed by Konami in 1981. Scramble would evolve upon the Defender formula, so let's talk about it a little bit. In Scramble, you would control a ship just like what you would in Defender. In this game, you would have to navigate a constantly side-scrolling world to defeat a number of aliens and eventually make your way to their base to eliminate the enemy threat entirely. So a couple of differences here between Defender and Scramble. In Defender, you controlled the movement of your ship. You moved your ship and the world would scroll with you. In Scramble, the screen never stops moving. It is always forward movement. So yes, you can control your spaceship and move it forward, backwards, up, or down, but you really couldn't control the speed or the movement through the world. The game itself was moving you through it. You can almost think of it as a pseudo-on-rails kind of shooter because you couldn't really uh, control the overall movement yourself. Now, in Scramble... The challenge comes not only from avoiding enemies, and there are plenty of enemies that you have to avoid and or defeat, but also navigating the game world. You would have to move your ship up and down to avoid platforms, walls, and other obstacles. 
So in many ways, the level design was similar to a traditional platform title, except your goal was to avoid the platforms, not jump from one to another, because if you hit a platform in Scramble, your ship would crash. And the whole game was structured as a mission. You had to progress through a changing game world and defeat the alien menace. This wasn't just about getting a high score or surviving as far as you could in a wave-based shooter. This game actually had an end goal, and it appears to have been the very first arcade game designed with that kind of concept in mind. Now, if you do beat the game, it basically simply restarts at the beginning and you get to do it again, which was pretty typical of traditional arcade design at the time. But regardless, this was a brand new experience. And Scramble was significant not only because of its design as a mission-driven with an end-goal design game, but also because it really introduced Konami to the world stage, as Scramble would become the company's first worldwide hit with over 15,000 arcade cabinets sold in just the United States in its first five months of release. With Defender and Scramble providing the foundation for the side-scrolling shooter, a number of titles would be released in the years that followed, many of which continued to evolve the overall formula. One of the most important releases in the genre happened in 1985, when Konami once again struck gold with the release of Gradius. Gradius would take the basic formula for the side-scrolling shooter and improve upon nearly every aspect of it. Originally envisioned as a sequel to Scramble, Gradius would introduce incredibly detailed levels with numerous obstacles, enemy types, and environmental hazards to contend with, and every single level would be a uniquely designed experience. Furthermore, the game allowed you to collect power-ups and customize your ship's capabilities based on your preferred playstyle, driving a degree of gameplay diversity that wasn't seen all that much back in the mid-80s. So while Defender and Scramble would serve as the foundation of the side-scrolling shooter genre, Gradius is what shot it into the stratosphere, as it would become incredibly popular in its arcade iteration, as well as being ported to many home consoles and computer platforms of the time, while spawning a number of sequels and spin-offs that continue to be released even today. It served as the inspiration for countless development teams over the years that followed, and it nearly single-handedly popularized the genre amongst the broader gaming community. Now, I do want to share an interesting bit of trivia here about Gradius. One of the most famous cheat codes of all time, typically referred to as the Konami code, was first created for the home port of Gradius. So let's talk about that story. The Konami code was created by Kasuhisa Hashimoto back in 1985. He had been working on the Nintendo Entertainment System port of Gradius and was basically unable to test the game effectively because the game was just too darn hard. So he decided to create a code, which was up, up, down, down, left, right, left, right, B, A, start, as a means of making the game easier. For Gradius, that meant giving your ship a full set of power-ups, which would otherwise only be accessible through playing the game normally, and also getting pretty far in the game. Interestingly, the code was never supposed to be published for end users through experience. It was supposed to be removed before Gradius was sent off for mass production, but somebody overlooked the removal of the code and it was determined that trying to go back and remove it prior to shipping the title would have been a bit too risky and could have possibly introduced new bugs into the title. So they left it in, thinking that there was very little chance for someone to stumble upon the code while playing the game normally. 
But of course, someone did eventually discover it, and then it spread like wildfire across the entire gaming world, which was, of course, pre-internet. So it's not like this popped up on Reddit and everybody knew about the code. This is one of those things that spread around schoolyards as people found it out, or magazines. It was definitely an interesting cultural phenomenon as it started to be passed around. And the rest, as they say, is history, as the Konami code would be included in nearly every Konami title thereafter, and would also be a staple of gaming culture even to this day. So, at this point, we've discussed both side-scrolling vehicle-based shooters and twin-stick shooters where you control a character and have to defeat enemies coming at you from all directions. It only makes sense that eventually someone would look to combine the elements of both— Take the smooth side-scrolling of the vehicle-based shooters we've been talking about, change the vehicle to a person, and have them navigate levels where they have to jump and climb from platform to platform rather than fly around obstacles. Konami, having had great success with Gradius, tried something just like that in 1985 when they released the side-scrolling run-and-gun sort of shooter, Russian Attack, otherwise known as Green Beret in arcades. And that is Rush an attack, not Russian attack, but it was a play on words related to all of the Cold War activities that were happening between the U.S. and Russia. Now, I called this game a sort of shooter because most of the game wasn't actually spent shooting anyone. Your main weapon in Russian attack was a knife, and only power-ups were able to grant you the ability to shoot a gun or blast a rocket launcher, and that was only for a limited period of time. Players would control a soldier navigating a series of levels across different military installations, dispatching all sorts of enemies with knife-based attacks, and by that I mean you had a single attack that consisted of stabbing enemies with your knife. It was, for the time, pretty revolutionary, but it was, once again, primitive by today's standards. Regardless, arcade-goers loved it, and it became a major commercial success, leading to it being ported to a number of home consoles like the NES and various computer platforms like the Commodore 64. Russian Attack was undoubtedly a success for Konami, but it would be Konami's next run-and-gun title that would set the world on fire. That game, as you might guess, was Contra, which was originally released in arcades back in 1986. When setting out to create Contra, Konami decided to blend elements of many prior titles and genres to create an experience that would be unique and revolutionary. So let's talk about a few ways that Konami created something special with Contra. Pulling from their experience with Gradius, the player would be expected to complete a number of diverse levels from a side-scrolling perspective. Like Russian Attack, your character would be a soldier rather than a ship, meaning as you navigate the levels, you'd have to traverse various platforming elements and obstacles to reach your goal. Unlike Russian Attack, though, your main source of damage would be gun-based, with power-ups similar to those found in Gradius, allowing you to upgrade your weapon to utilize different effects, like laser beams, rapid fire, and spread shots. Firing those weapons would utilize a dedicated button for shooting, with your aiming direction and overall movement being tied to a single joystick. As an example, pressing forward and diagonally up while shooting would both move your character as well as fire your weapon in a diagonal direction. So in this way, Konami combined the twin-stick shooter kind of approach to directional shooting into a simpler single joystick control scheme. Also taking a cue from twin-stick shooters' typical overhead viewpoint, Konami would include a couple of levels with a more over-the-shoulder kind of perspective, and it would further include a level where the goal was to climb upwards rather than simply run side to side. 
This level diversity allowed gameplay to remain fresh throughout the whole game and was intended to keep the player invested in the experience as they progressed closer towards their goal. As with many arcade games of the time, Contra would be designed to be a difficult experience. Anytime you'd come into contact with an enemy or a stray projectile, you would die. You did have a few lives to play with, and if you lost all of your lives, which, unless you spent a ton of time playing the game, was pretty likely, you would have the ability to continue your game by inserting more coins, fairly typical of an arcade game experience. Unlike many arcade games, however, you were only given three continues before the game would totally restart. I thought this was an interesting design decision, because it served to both ramp up the difficulty while at the same time almost acting as a limiting factor for how much a casual player might spend while attempting to beat the game, while driving other less casual players to spend even more coins, since they couldn't just power spend their way through the title. Contra would end up releasing around the world, though not every version would be the same, even in the arcades. Beyond the typical name changes that might occur from country to country, the biggest difference that I came across was that in Europe, the game only supported alternating multiplayer. So the way that Contra worked is it was a multiplayer game. You could play it single player if you wanted to, but you could also play it multiplayer. And the way the game worked was if you were playing multiplayer, two people, you and a companion, would be able to actually work your way through the game, shooting all the bad guys and trying to work your way through the various hazards and levels together. In the European release, you would have to alternate. So it wasn't a true co-op multiplayer kind of experience. It was kind of like a pass the controller multiplayer experience where you would take a turn, you'd get to a certain part of a level, and then you would die. And then your companion would play. They would start from the beginning of the level or wherever they were. They would go to wherever they went to, and then they would die. So definitely an interesting decision to make that a bit different because from my perspective, multiplayer in Contra is one of the most fun ways to play the game. I'm curious why they decided when they released the game in Europe to change that up. Regardless, Contra was definitely a successful arcade game, and it would become one of the top-grossing arcade titles of the year across various world territories. With that success, Konami would work to port the game to a variety of computer and console platforms of the time, with the most well-known and well-regarded version being the port to the Nintendo Entertainment System. Now, within Nintendo's 8-bit ecosystem, each version of Contra would be just a bit different, though there were some common alterations from the arcade version of the title. So let's talk about the commonalities across the 8-bit versions of Contra. First, we'll talk about the graphics. In all instances, the graphics were downgraded from 16 bits to 8 bits. That resulted in a general loss of detail. There was also a reduction as far as the overall frame rate for certain animations from 60 frames per second in the arcade down to 30 frames per second at home. That was primarily driven by hardware limitations of the 8-bit hardware. There was also some simplification of the overall design, because in the arcade... The individual designs for the two characters were unique. It wasn't just a plain color swap between red and blue. They actually had different models. In the home versions on the 8-bit Nintendo systems, basically it was just a palette swap. You were the same exact model. One character was red, the other one was blue. Moving on to level design, the levels were changed fairly dramatically between the arcade and the NES version. Uh, seven levels from the arcade version ultimately became eight in the NES version, which meant that some levels were combined, others were split apart, and the general level design was just 
basically changed, both because of hardware differences as well as the desire to make the home experience longer than the arcade experience. So the home levels were actually a bit longer than what you would see in the arcades. And then finally, the music. All of the music was changed in the game. The melodies were the same, but the music was recomposed to fit into the NES hardware specifications, which didn't have quite as many capabilities as the traditional arcade sound system of the time. Now, that being said, those are the similarities between all of the 8-bit versions of Contra. There are quite a few differences as well, which is interesting because at the end of the day, all of those are Nintendo systems. So for the purposes of this discussion, let's consider the North American version the baseline because that is the version that I have the most familiarity with. In Japan, the Famicom version of Contra would be pretty much identical to the North American NES version of the game from a pure gameplay perspective but it would actually have additional graphical elements added in the stages, as well as cutscenes in the game, which did not exist in the North American version. That was allowed because there was a custom memory controller in the Famicom version that wasn't used in the NES version of the game. In Europe, the game was changed fairly dramatically, being retitled to Probotector and having a number of characters changed from humans to robots in order to get around German censorship laws. For Nintendo systems, the Famicom version was pretty much the definitive edition of the game. It had all of the goodness of the North American version while at the same time adding in additional features, additional effects, and cutscenes. Now, I do want to look at a couple of additional ports because you guys know that I love talking about the differences between ports of games to various systems. So for the Commodore 64, we'll look at that one first. It was much more arcade faithful than the NES version, at least in terms of the level design. So if you look at the individual levels and you compare the Commodore 64 to the arcade version, the levels looked pretty darn similar. They seem to have the same elements, the same platforms, the same overall enemy layout. That being said, the music and graphics were a significant downgrade, with the music in particular being pretty much just a track or two that repeated. In the arcade, in the NES version, each of the individual stages would have their own unique music. In the Commodore 64 version, it seemed like it repeated the same song over and over and over again. On the Japanese MSX2 computer platform, which is a different platform, we actually talked a little bit about it during our Snatcher episode last week, the game once again had level design more similar to the arcade version as opposed to the NES's changes. Though beyond the arcade-based levels, the game also included 10 additional levels that were exclusive to this version of the game. The only issue with that, because it sounds like that would be the version to play, the only issue with the MSX2 version of the game was that because of the hardware limitations of that particular system, there was no smooth scrolling. Each screen existed independently, and as you moved to the edge of the screen, the next screen would load. So that was almost like a throwback to an older school kind of design. Other changes included the removal of multiplayer, continues, and the inclusion of a life bar as opposed to one-hit kills. Also included in the MSX version of the game was a modified power-up system, with the spread gun being replaced by a gun that shoots both forward and in reverse. Now, this was a major downgrade, in my opinion. The spread gun is by far my favorite gun in the entire game, and the fact that the MSX version uh, didn't have that particular gun would have made the game literally unplayable. Well, maybe not literally, but you get my point. It was just, it was not a great decision, in my opinion. Now, regardless of where or how you played the game, 
Contra would become a huge success across both its arcade and home port iterations, with the NES version in particular becoming one of the most well-known games of all time, spawning a number of sequels across both classic and more modern gaming platforms, and effectively serving as an inspiration to future run-and-gun titles like the Metal Slug series. It would receive a number of Action Game of the Year awards, and is on many gamers' lists of best games of all time, as well as most difficult games of all time, and I'll provide my opinion on that one in just a little bit. It also served to truly push the Konami code into the mainstream. While it was first introduced in Gradius, it really rose to pop culture significance as a result of Contra, where the code granted 30 lives, making the prospects of beating the title a bit more within reach of the standard player as opposed to just trying to play through the game with three lives and a limited number of continues under normal circumstances. So with Contra, Konami created a run-and-gun game that would forever change the gaming landscape. As the combination of several different gaming genres, Konami developed a unique, refined experience that would stand the test of time as a well-respected title and the first in what would become a successful worldwide franchise. It is one of the more important releases in gaming history, and I'd wager anyone who ever played it most certainly will never forget the experience. going to start talking about what it feels like to play the game today versus when it was released over 30 years ago. So just one point of clarification up front, we are talking about the Nintendo Entertainment System version of the game. That is the version of the game that I have the most nostalgia for. That's the version of the game that I played back in the day. I recognize the original was the arcade, but I didn't really play it in the arcade back when it was out. I did play the NES version, though, a lot when I was a kid. And just so everybody is aware of of just how much I played this, I loved Contra as a kid. And I would play it, oh, geez, it had to be, when it was on my rotation in the late 80s, I played it nearly every day. And even though I played it every day, I never, ever got far in the game without the use of a little bit of assistance. And by assistance, I mean the Konami code, the 30 lives code up, up, down, down, left, right, left, right, B, A, start. That was my best friend as it related to Contra. So picture this scene. I would come home from school. I would sit down at my console and I would fire up Contra. I'd put in the Konami code. I'd get my 30 lives and I wouldn't just play with a regular controller. I had the NES Ultimate Super Stick, which I believe was a third-party accessory, but it was kind of like an arcade joystick. It had an A and B button, both on the left and the right, depending on whether you were left or right-handed. And it also had uh, slow motion, which for for the time was really just, it just constantly pressed the start button. So slow motion was effectively pausing and unpausing the game constantly on that controller, and then it also had a turbo mode for both the A and the B buttons. And what I thought was really cool about that was it was a dial. It wasn't just a turbo on, turbo off. You could set how much turbo you were using for each of the buttons. So I would sit down at Contra. I would get my ultimate super stick. I would plug up or I would turn up the turbo for the shooting, 
and I would put in my Konami code and I would have a heck of a time. And I would beat the game on a regular basis using the 30 lives and using the turbo fire mode of the controller. Years later, meaning kind of today, I recognize that that is pretty much as much cheating as you could possibly do on an NES game short of firing up a game genie and giving yourself invincibility mode. So for playing through the game today, I wanted to do it as I've been doing for all of these games, as the game was originally designed. That means no cheating, no save states, uh, no turbo, nothing like that. If it wasn't built into the game as a default feature, I did not play it. So I'll talk about the difficulty of the game playing under those constraints because, as I believe many are aware, Contra is often considered to be one of the more difficult titles released for the NES in particular, but also just in general. A lot of people have Contra on their list of hardest games of all time. So we'll talk about the difficulty, at least as I found it, as we get a little bit further on. So I did look at the arcade version. As I was preparing for this, I did look at the arcade version and I thought, well, maybe I'll play that one. But the fact of the matter is, as I did more research about the arcade version, and as I watched a couple of gameplay videos just to get a sense of what it was like and just did a little bit more digging into it, the NES version actually appears to be the better version of the game from nearly every single perspective. One of the big ones, as I was looking at the video, and once again, you can't tell anything or everything by looking at a gameplay video, you really have to experience it. But from looking at the gameplay video, the arcade controls and the jump animations in particular look just a little bit off. It, it just didn't look like it was nearly as responsive or as smooth as the NES version. Now, I will admit that the graphics in the arcade version does have more colors or there, there are more colors in the arcade version. It's a little bit more detailed. That's absolutely true. But the, the colors that were chosen for the arcade version almost look a little bit more dreary in comparison to the brighter colors of the NES. Similar with the music. The music is technically more complex in the arcade version, but the NES version soundtrack is just iconic, and it utilized the system's sound hardware to really great effect. So in short, even though the arcade version was first, and even though most of the time you look at an arcade title and you say, oh, well, that must be the definitive version of the game other than a home port, in this instance, the NES version appears to be superior to the arcade version of the game, which is kind of rare and is another reason why I wanted to play the NES version. Beyond the nostalgia, beyond the fact that I am very familiar with the NES version based on my own childhood experiences, it just looks to be the better version of the game and probably is the version of the game that will most resonate with all of you since the NES version was pretty much the one that kicked off the entire Contra series. Anyway, that mild tangent aside, just to recap, Contra is a run-and-gun shooter, like we've talked about this entire episode. There are platforming elements built into the game, and as you move your way through a level, you're going to have to both shoot, run, and jump your way around obstacles and defeat enemies and just work your way through all the way to the boss of the level and then eventually move on to the next level, hopefully. So this is kind of the standard for run-and-gun shooters. When somebody thinks run-and-gun shooter, on, almost automatically, people are going to say, oh, well, Contra's on that list. It was kind of the one that put the run-and-gun shooter genre on the map. And as you move through each of the levels, so there's a lot of things that Contra does that set the standard moving forward. 
As you move through each of the levels, there are a bunch of different enemy types. They weren't content to just have some standard enemies that would be reused in every single level. And now granted, there is some reuse here and there. But Contra and the development team, they did a great job in infusing the game with a lot of different enemy types, all of which had different movement patterns, different shooting patterns. Some would jump from off the screen and and attack you randomly, or at least it felt randomly, which can be a little bit irritating, but (laughs) that's just part of the game. The bosses for each of the levels, very large bosses. They all had their own little tricks and little uh, mechanics built into it that you'd have to recognize the patterns in order to defeat the levels themselves, there is a large variety in each of the levels. Some of them have standard side scrolling. Some of them are an over the shoulder perspective. Others you may have to climb vertically. And by climb, I mean you're kind of jumping from platform to platform, albeit in a vertical direction. And the game does have some power ups as you move through the levels. Uh, we'll talk more about the power ups specifically in a little bit. So as you move around, you can aim in all directions while moving, which is a big deal, especially when you think about some of the other run-and-gun games that came later that we've even talked about on this podcast, like The Terminator and some of its versions that effectively took the run-and-gun gameplay, took the run out of it, and just made it be stand-and-gun and move then, which was kind of weird. Anyway, in Contra, one-hit kills are on. That means if you get hit by anything one time, you are dead, you will lose a life. You do have three lives as you start the game by default, and you get extra lives awarded as you achieve certain point thresholds in the game. You also are given three continues, but if you lose all of your lives, you have to restart the level that you were on if you have to continue. If you die, if you lose just one of your lives in the level, you will respawn right where you died, albeit all of the power-ups that you may have collected will be gone, and you'll have to power back up in order to get to that same level of effectiveness. So, with that high-level overview out of the way, let's dive a little bit deeper into some of the other gameplay elements. And I want to talk specifically about the levels in the game, because these levels are what make up the overall experience. And from my standpoint, the level variety was just really well done in Contra. So I want to talk very specifically about each of the levels. Now, across the entire game in the NES version, there are eight levels. The first level is the jungle. It is a 100% amazing introduction into the game. It is, as you would expect, a relatively simple level. You're not going to see a ton of complex mechanics here. You're not going to see a situation where the game is trying to really test you and your skills, but it is not a pushover. It's relatively simple, and it lets you get a good feel for the controls and the movement and what the game is going to expect from you moving forward. It introduces several of the power-ups that will become pervasive throughout the rest of the game. You can start to figure out what power-ups work, what power-ups don't. You have the traditional platforming side-to-side movement. You're able to tackle all the different enemies, some some turrets, some regular kind of humanoid enemies, and then you do have a boss at the end of the level, which you have to think through just a little bit, otherwise you will get destroyed. So from that perspective, it is kind of the game in a nutshell, but in a much more simplified way. It's not going to overly test you, but it's also not a walk in the park either. If you get past the jungle, you will get to the first base level. So level two is the base level. And this level introduces a brand new perspective to the game. This is the over-the-shoulder perspective. So rather than just having a traditional side-scrolling, run-and-gun kind of experience, 
in this level, in the base levels, and there are two of them in the game, but in this first base level, you have an over-the-shoulder view, and you're facing the enemies that you're trying to attack and defeat. So you don't really move side to side other than moving side to side to avoid projectiles and enemies and, and things like that. But in this level, you are kind of moving forward, albeit you don't move forward just by controlling your own character. You have to eliminate all of the obstacles or all of the enemies on the screen and then the rest of the screen kind of blows up and then the game will move you forward or you press up and you can move forward. But it's not like you're running and gunning forward from that perspective. It's just simply you have static screens, you clear the screen and then you can move forward to get onto the next part of the stage. Um, if you duck to avoid projectiles in this stage, by the way, it's almost impossible for you to lose. This is one of those stages where it's a cool concept it's not overly challenging at all if you know or if you remember to duck because other than two types of attacks, one of them is a rolling barrel sort of thing. It's not really a barrel, but it's some sort of rolling projectile that rolls along the floor. That can hit you if you're ducking, so you have to either shoot that to destroy it or you'd have to jump over it. And there's also a couple of enemies that will throw bombs at you. Other than those two attacks, just ducking, you cannot get hit. So that's something that strategically within that level, you kind of have to pick out when to move, when to duck, when to shoot, when to take cover, and you should be able to get through that level relatively simply. After the base, you get into the waterfall level. This is level three, and this is a vertical climbing level. Now, you can see just early on, the first three stages all play around with different aspects of the run and gun formula. And for what it's worth, the run and gun formula was pretty much defined by Contra. So they're, they're writing their own formula as they're going. But level three was the waterfall level. And this is the level where you actually have to ascend platforms. You have to climb vertically as you move through the level. And I will say that this is probably going to be the first level where you encounter or might encounter some difficulty. Because as you're moving up on the screen, you may have enemies that jump out of nowhere. You might have turrets that appear as you move. There are also some enemies that are hiding in the water that will throw bombs at you and, and throw actually multiple bombs at you, which can be a little bit challenging if you're not ready for them. Assuming you get past the waterfall, you'll move on to stage four, which is another base level. This one is pretty much the same as level two, other than the fact that it's a little bit more complex, a little bit more challenging. You have a couple of more bomb throwers in there, which makes the whole strategy of just ducking to avoid fire. It makes you have to move around a little bit more. Really not all that much more complex from an overall level design perspective. Moving on to level five, you hit the snow field. This is where the levels are starting to get a bit more complex. You have enemies that are starting to shoot a lot faster. You have some flying bombs coming in from the tree line as you're navigating the level. So this is where it's starting to get a little bit more complex. And then level six is the energy zone. Now, here's a level where you might have a little bit of trial and error. And the reason for that is the fire jets. There are fire jets embedded in this level as you go around. Some are vertically facing down, some are vertically facing up, some are side to side, some are timed that you have to time your jumps and ducks to make sure that you don't get hit by the laser jets or the fire jets. They will effectively ruin you if you're not ready for them. This is a level where you're going to have to have a bit of observation and enemies will keep charging at you. So you do have to pay attention to the overall environment and your overall just situational awareness as you're working your way through the level. But the fire jets, 
The first time I got in there and I got up to the edge of the platform, and I know I said I played it before as a kid, but honestly, I didn't remember all of the aspects and all of the timing for each of the levels, so it was kind of like playing it again. I had some muscle memory, but not a whole ton. So as I got into the energy zone and I started to work my way through the level, there were some jumps with some fire blast or fire jets there that took a little bit for me to figure out what the right timing would be when I would need to make the jump because the jumps and the gaps in the level were a little bit farther apart than what I would have liked. And it could have just been a psychological thing, but it felt like I had to wait until the very last second to jump in order to get over the gap that I was trying to traverse. And then you couple that with a fire jet that's spewing down on your head as you're trying to jump. And it can create a little bit of a situation. So I found the energy zone a little bit difficult until I got a bit more used to it. And once I practiced it, it wasn't too, too bad. But coming out of the gate, hitting that level, after the first five levels, which are pretty traditional, albeit they consistently get a little bit more difficult every level as you go, the energy zone was kind of like a gut check. And it was like, you don't just have to run and shoot, you also have to pay attention to the environment. Then you get to level seven, which is the hangar. And here, once again, you have some environmental hazards that you have to watch out for. There are robotic arms uh, interspersed throughout the level where they will just move up and down. You have to time your movement to get past those robotic arms. Otherwise, you get hit by one of those, you will lose a life. And then you also have spiked walls that will pop up at different points throughout the level, and they need to be destroyed. If you touch one of those spikes, you will, once again, lose a life. There are also some environmental effects in the level. There are automatically moving mine carts that you can ride if you so desire. I will say the only time I rode that or rode one of those carts was in order to get to a higher level platform that I couldn't reach otherwise. Beyond that, I don't think there's really a need or a desire to ride those mine carts. It seems like most of the time the mine carts move through a relatively more difficult area or section of the level than you would otherwise move through if you were not using the cart. And there are multiple levels in this particular stage. So you can either walk across, it's kind of split in the middle. You can either walk across the top level, which generally speaking has some more uh, obstacles as far as the robotic arms and spiked walls, but you can kind of control your movement or you can go down the bottom level, which seems to have more of those obstacles. So for me, it was top level all the way, except when a top level didn't, didn't exist. Uh, but you do have that option to ride the minecart if you want. I just didn't really see a good reason to do that. And then assuming you get past the hangar, you will reach the alien's lair. This is the final level of the game. It's pretty short, which is a good thing. Uh, there's a, a kind of a pseudo, pseudo mini boss fight at the beginning against a big alien head as you dodge some fire blasts. Then you progress through the level as aliens along the floor and the ceiling shoot webby projectiles at you, which are destroyable. But if you don't destroy them, you're going to get in a little bit of trouble. And pretty much if you move slowly and steadily through the level, you're probably not going to have a whole heck of a lot of difficulty on the final stage. Now, the end of the stage, I will say, can get a little bit tricky depending on what gun or what power-up that you have at that point because there will be some little mini alien creatures that charge at you. Um, so if you're not ready for them, it can be a little bit difficult, especially as you're trying to defeat the final alien menace. So those are the levels in the game. You can see they're, they're pretty. there's a pretty good amount of variety there, and they try to keep the levels very 
uh, mixed up. They kind of mixed it up for you as you went through, as far as the perspectives, the general mechanics of a level, whether it was vertical or side-scrolling, some of the environmental effects or environmental obstacles. They definitely did a good job with keeping you on your toes. And like we mentioned before, as you move through the levels, you do gain any number of weapon power-ups. And I have to talk about the power-ups as well, because they almost make or break the game, at least from my standpoint, because if you have a good power-up, you're going to have a much easier time than you will if you have a not-so-great power-up. So by default, you start with a gun, and every time that you hit your button on your controller, you will shoot that gun. You can also get a rapid fire power up, which turns your gun into a machine gun, which basically means you could just hold the button down and it will just continuously fire bullets. This is a pretty good power up. I do find that this is probably my second favorite power up in the game. If I don't have anything else, I will use the machine gun because it just it fires automatically if you hold down the button and it seems to really do a pretty good job on bosses from that perspective. There's also a flamethrower, which is kind of like flame spirals that shoot out of the gun. This one's a little bit tricky to get right in that it's not going to necessarily fire at what's directly in front of you. And plus, there's a little bit of a delay from when you shoot the gun to when the projectile will actually hit any enemies that you're shooting at. It seems relatively powerful, but this was not one of my favorites. This was probably one of my least favorite power-ups. My least favorite power-up was the laser shot which is pretty darn powerful. So if you you shoot the gun and a laser shoots out from your gun, you can't rapid fire it because if you do, the laser just continuously resets itself, which I didn't particularly like. But if you have a little bit of self-control and you shoot the laser, it will shoot out. And if the entire laser hits the enemy, meaning as it's kind of going, the laser is a long line. And if you let the line actually go through the enemy that you're shooting at, it will destroy them. And most enemies take one shot to kill, so it's not like it's usable like that throughout most of the game. But for bosses that do take more than one shot to kill their various appendages or parts, it can be useful. It's still my least favorite power-up in the game. It just feels like, for me, moving through the game, I want to constantly be slamming on that button, the fire button, and the laser discourages that because of how the, how the weapon is designed. And... For me, it just wasn't my favorite. My favorite power-up, though, by far, the one that I would carry with me into war and back is the spread shot. This is the one. This is the way. This is the way that I played the game. And whenever I had a chance, whenever I had a chance, I would go out of my way to get or keep the spread shot. The spread shot is exactly what it sounds like. You fire once, and it shoots out a bunch of projectiles in a vertical direction kind of vertically moving out from you so it spreads out in almost like a fan and multiple projectiles move forward now this is useful for a number of reasons one if you're on a platform and you want to hit somebody that's vertically either above or below you and you have enough distance for the projectiles to spread out enough you could just shoot and it'll hit somebody on the platform above or below you without even having to aim also, one of the biggest benefits is that if you get really close to a boss and you shoot or just anything that requires more than one shot to kill and you shoot the gun, not only will one projectile hit, but you'll get credit for however many projectiles the spread gun is creating. So it almost makes it like a shotgun blast if you're really, really close to a given enemy. It will destroy bosses. If you get 
relatively proficient with how to use the spread gun effectively and how to manage your distance between bosses or between the enemies that you're trying to fight, you will absolutely decimate them. And I loved it. I wish I could play the entire game with Spreadshot, uh, but you'd have to get pretty darn good in order to keep Spreadshot throughout the entire game. Now, that being said, they the level designers did a pretty good job of mixing in the power-ups throughout the different levels, and I would venture a guess and say most levels had uh, at least either the machine gun or the spread shot at some point. They might have all been in there, and I just might have missed them. The The way the power-ups work is they kind of go flying across the screen as a capsule, and you have to shoot the capsule in order to unlock the power-up, or to have the power-up drop, and then you have to retrieve the power-up, and then it's applied to your weapon. So I don't know that I've seen every single version or every single capsule what it's containing. I will say that when you got or when you get relatively good at the game, you can pretty much hold on to your desired power up for a pretty long period of time. So it doesn't become all that much of an issue. The one other power up that I did not mention is there is one that you can pick up that basically eliminates or destroys all of the enemies on the screen. That's only available in a couple levels. It's useful when it drops, but it's literally just a one-use kind of thing. You pick it up, and it destroys everything that's on the screen. So something to mention just for completeness sake, but not something you can rely upon for the actual playthrough of your game. Before we move on to talk about the specific aspects of Contra, like graphics and sound and narrative, I do want to take a look at what the back of the box says, because, as you all know, Back in the 80s, early 90s time frame, when you were going to buy a video game or a computer game, you may not have known exactly what that game was about. You may have seen it in a magazine, but you may not have. And we certainly didn't have the internet with YouTube gameplay videos that we could look up in advance to help inform our buying decision. So a lot of times when we bought a game, it was based upon what the box says. And beyond that, I just find the whole process of how game companies market their titles and how they visually catch you in order to try to drive you to buy their game. I just find that whole process very interesting. So for Contra, the back of the box, once again, the NES version says, Pitted against the galaxy's fiercest foe, you either win or the whole world loses. The universe teeters on the brink of total annihilation at the hands of the vile alien warmonger Red Falcon. Earth's only hope rests with you, a courageous member of the Special Forces Elite Commando Squad. Your mission? Battle deep into the deadly Amazon jungle, where the Red Falcon and his galactic henchmen have transformed ancient Mayan temples into awesome monuments dedicated to mass destruction. A multitude of weapons, from rapid-fire machine guns to high-tech lasers, are at your disposal as you sweat, blood, fighting past 3D mazes, underground security systems, and tropical forests surrounded by giant waterfalls and alien cannons. This is the ultimate test for the ultimate guerrilla warrior. And if you survive, Earth survives. Featuring simultaneous play for two players or play against the computer. And then they have a couple of screenshots on the back of the box. One of them is from one of the base levels. The other one is from the first jungle level. And then one from the hangar with the robotic arms descending. So looking at that box, I would say, boy, this feels like this feels like a movie. I definitely want to play that. So I think they did a good job of capturing people's attention with that box. And certainly if anybody was familiar with the arcade title and they saw this for a home console, they'd probably say, oh yeah, I want to get in on that. So let's move into talking about the more specific aspects of the game itself, and we're going to start by looking at the graphics. 
I've got to say, the game looks great. The colors are vibrant and varied. The environments and enemies are nicely detailed. Every single level, aside from the two base levels, which are basically the same level except for different obstacles that are that are programmed or designed into the level, but every level felt unique and distinct. You, We already talked through the levels. You can see the variety of the environments that were there. And you never questioned, as you're playing the game, you never questioned where you were. Everything felt in place, and it all meshed incredibly well. The animations were smooth and quick. The bosses that you'd have to fight were large and detailed, though I will say that a lot of them were just basically buildings with some specific weak spots. So I don't know that I would call it a traditional true enemy design. It was more of an encounter design, and all of the encounters were designed pretty darn well. And they were a little bit complex, too. You definitely have to learn the mechanics and learn the patterns for each of those bosses. Bottom line is, this looks really good for an 8-bit title, and it captures that retro aesthetic really well. And if you played a modern retro game or a modern game that was styled as an 8-bit retro title today... Contra would look right in line with what you might see from independent developers today. Now, my own personal opinion here is that it does, in fact, look better than the more technologically advanced arcade version. I know that is entirely subjective, but my personal opinion is Contra on the NES just looks great. Moving on to the sound and music, most of the musical tracks here are instantly recognizable if you played the game for any period of time. It makes great use of the NES sound system. It's just, it sounds so good to the ears. And even though they didn't have real instruments, so to speak, for the game, you could almost tell exactly what they were going for. The just sound design and the music was just so well composed. It just transformed you or transported you into these environments as you're playing the game. There were hard-driving beats. There were iconic melody lines. It just all perfectly blends with the action on the screen. The sound effects, similarly, just sounded right. Every time you'd shoot the gun, every time you would hear the enemies shoot, every time you'd hear the little the high-pitched clink-clink-clink noise as you were shooting a turret or a boss weak spot, it just all felt so good to the ears. It was just a home run. Everything about the sound and music I loved about the game. Moving on to the narrative and story, we've talked about this a bit before. Platformers do not need a super strong story. Run and guns, I would fall into that same category. You don't need a ton of story here. It's all about the gameplay. That's really what the experience is all about. But Contra, for what it's worth, does have a pretty solid 1980s Hollywood kind of backstory, which I love because I was a child of the 80s and I loved all of those 80s action films. So Contra is pretty much the distillation of all of those various 80s Hollywood action movie tropes into a single experience. So for Contra, here's the here's the basic storyline. You play as either Bill Riser or Lance Bean, members of Earth Marine Corps' Contra unit, which is an elite soldier group. So automatically, if I'm a kid reading this, it sounds amazing. Of course, I want to be a part of an elite soldier group. Even as an adult, I'm like, yeah, that's, that's selling it for me. I kind of like that. And your mission is to stop the Red Falcon organization, which is a criminal group under some form of alien mind control. They are focused on destroying the world. 
And then you basically have to go into all of the different levels. Like the back of the box said, we go into the jungle and we go through and we try to eliminate the alien menace and save the world. So I appreciate that there was an actual backstory here. I always enjoy when a developer goes out of their way to add some additional narrative or plot. But for me, Contra is all about running and shooting, not necessarily the stakes at play. While I appreciate the fact that there is a plot there, it doesn't need it. The gameplay stands on its own. So I still like the fact that a backstory exists. It's just not something that would have been 100% needed. Regardless, it's just another way that Contra sets itself off from the pack. Moving on to the playability and controls, uh, some of you may recall that I recently played a number of Terminator 16-bit titles a couple episodes ago. So their run-and-gun gameplay and the overall mechanics in those titles are still very much a recent memory. That being said, I have no idea why or how anyone would not simply copy Contra's control scheme to their run-and-gun title. Contra controls amazingly well. It just feels good to play. You never feel like you don't have complete control over your character. And despite the number of times that you're likely to die before you become proficient enough to advance in the game, it almost never feels like a cheap death. That being said... There are some sections where random enemy spawns and unfortunate projectile paths will make you get frustrated. And for me, it was no different. As I was working my way through the level, I would feel like I was getting in a groove, and then suddenly an enemy would jump from off of the screen and just land on me. And there would pretty much be no way I could have avoided that just based on where I was positioned on the screen and where the enemy was coming in. So those kind of things can happen. A little bit of frustration there. And certainly... Without using the 30 life Konami code, it would take a significant amount of time to become proficient enough in the later game to be able to beat the title. But the fact is, that was just the way games were made back in the 80s. They weren't long experiences, and Contra isn't a long experience either. Probably it'll take you between 20 to 25 minutes to beat the game if you're just rolling on all cylinders and just firing away and not really dying much or not really having to continue much. It's not that long of a game. The length of the time that you spend with the game is going to be the amount of time that you need to learn it in order to become proficient enough to actually beat it. It's not like you're experiencing brand new content all all along the way. Uh, it's really all about how do you learn the levels, how do you learn the mechanics, how do you learn to avoid certain things or shoot other things in order to eventually progress throughout the rest of the game. So in that way, the game is definitely a function of the time in which it was designed. That was the height of game design back in the late 80s. But honestly, it still feels great to play today, and it's not hard to see why many developers copied Contra in the years following its release. Except for the Terminator 16-bit Sega Genesis version, which for some reason decided they were going to try something different. I have no idea why. Moving on, how did it feel to play the game? What was the overall feel like? The overall game experience for me was almost an entirely enjoyable time. And I say almost because when facing anything with a pretty significant difficulty level, you can at times become frustrated. That's just part of playing a challenging game. But the more you play it and the more you learn the game, the frustration eventually melts away and all you're left with is a fun, action-packed time. 
That being said, I could see some more casual players not enjoying the experience because it can be difficult, especially if you play the original game without the Konami code and no save states or any other kinds of assists. If you play it as the game was designed, you're going to have a challenging time. So for anybody that wants to play the game like that or experience the game as it was originally designed, you got to expect to put in some serious hours to be able to eventually beat the game. Now, I will say it is totally a beatable game, even though it appears incredibly difficult at first. If you dedicate the time to it, you can beat it. Just don't expect that to happen on your first playthrough. So for me, just to give a little bit of an anecdotal experience to this whole thing. When I played the game, when I decided I was going to play Contra for an episode of the podcast, the first thing I did was I sat down and I put in the Konami code because I'm thinking, I just want to get my muscle memory back. I just want to... Uh, re-understand or relearn the levels and, and see how I could do. And I sat down <laughs> under the illusion that all of those childhood experiences would translate directly into my 40 plus year old body and playing the game. And I've got to say that did not happen. I put in the Konami code and I made it to maybe level five or six before I had exhausted all of my continues, despite the fact that I had 30 lives per continue. So my first experience playing the game after not playing it for years and years and years was pretty frustrating, a little challenging, but I was trying to get my, my bearings. So then I went back, played it again, played it again. Eventually I beat it with the 30 life Konami code. And once I did that, then I thought, you know what? I'm going to have to, I'm just going to have to spend some time and become proficient with the rest of the game and just learn the levels, take the time to really study them, really work on them, figure out what to do. And I felt, you know, I can probably beat the game. So that set off around an eight to 10 hour period of time that could probably be condensed into an 80s movie training montage where I just continuously played the levels over and over and over again. I would die a lot but I was eventually learning the game. I was kind of starting to get a little bit better at playing the game. And eventually I did complete Contra without the Konami code, without any sort of assists or save states. And I think I only used one continue by the end of the game. And I don't know if anybody else has experienced this. When you're playing a difficult game, it's like you make minimal progress from playthrough to playthrough until eventually everything clicks and you have one playthrough where you play almost perfectly. This has happened to me now a bunch of times with different games where I'm kind of making a little bit of progress forward, a little bit of progress, but it doesn't feel substantial. And then suddenly it just all comes together and suddenly you become a gaming god for the game that you're playing and you just absolutely destroy the game. The number of times where that happens versus the number of times where I just barely squeak by with a victory for the final playthrough that I eventually do beat the game in, it's just, it's weird how much it just seems like Suddenly everything clicks. It's like a random thing. Everything clicks together and then you're able to beat the game. Anyway, that's been my experience. I don't know how everybody else feels or what everybody else's experiences have been. Regardless of that fact, looking specifically at Contra, if you want to just have some fun playing a really well-designed classic run and gun game, just put in the Konami code, use safe states and have a great time. There is no judgment here. Just because I'm playing the games in a certain way, that doesn't mean that you guys have to do that. Just have fun with it. Whatever's going to give you some fun and enjoyment, do it. So if that's the Konami code, safe states, just go for it and you will have a great time because Contra is a great game. It honestly works just as well as an originally designed challenging experience, as well as a more casual emulated game with all of the creature comforts that emulation allows. 
bottom line for Contra, it's just a good game. So, our verdict. Where does this sit in the video gaming historical context? The father of the run-and-gun genre, Contra, is an obvious entry into the pantheon of classic gaming. You should play this game, and no matter if you try to conquer its difficulty or you give yourself a bit of an advantage to get through the game easier, it remains a worthwhile experience to this day. It is without a question one of the best NES games ever made, and it deserves its spot in our pantheon of classic gaming. was our episode on Contra. I hope you all enjoyed listening to it as much as I enjoyed creating it. If you'd like to reach out, let me know how I'm doing or have suggestions, comments, feedback. You want to talk about classic gaming or technology in general? I would love to hear from you. And there are a couple of ways you can reach out. I do have a Twitter account with the handle at classic gaming T. And I also have an email address, which is classic gaming today at gmail.com. So feel free to reach out, drop me a line. I would love to hear what you're thinking. Before we sign off for the week, I want to mention that our next episode is focused on Aladdin and specifically the 16-bit Sega Genesis version of Aladdin. So if anybody has any particularly fond or not so fond memories of that game, feel free to write in. I'm legitimately interested in hearing what you think. At the same time, I recognize that this podcast lives pretty much wherever podcasts live. So if you would, if you wouldn't mind leaving a review on your podcast service of choice, I would greatly appreciate it. This is not about bolstering star counts. We're trying to get a bunch of five-star reviews. Though, if that happens, awesome. That means we're doing something right. What it is about, though, is making sure that I get the feedback needed to turn this into the best possible podcast that I can. I want to continue to make sure that the community is getting the content that they want to hear about, and the only way to do that is to get feedback from all of you. We are continually growing. We're continually adding new listeners every single day, and for that, I thank you all. But I do want to make sure that I get the feedback that's needed to make this the best possible podcast it can be. We'll be back in around a week with our next episode focused on the Genesis version of Aladdin. Until then, remember, sometimes the games of the past are just as good, if not better, than the games of today. Goodbye, everyone. 